You are about to listen to the Friends of Anchor podcast, which keeps you up to date with the inspirational work of the Friends of Anchor charity and everything that it's doing to support cancer and haematology care in the northeast of Scotland. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Friends of Anchor podcast. In this episode, we will be hearing from Dr. Dominic Culligan about advances in the treatment of blood-related cancers. And you may or may not be interested in this month's and finally slot on the lovely subject of leeches making a comeback for medical treatment purposes. Let's start, though, by hearing from Erica Banks on the leech-free topic of what's current with Friends of Anchor this month. So, Erica, we're into May, and I think there's only one thing on your mind. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Things are really ramping up for Courage on the Catwalk and Brave. As we're recording this, I'm about to go into the penultimate rehearsal for Courage on the Catwalk. But when this episode airs, the models will have the shows literally just right around the corner. So I think the main thing for me this month is just a huge message of good luck and gratitude to them. All 48 have embraced this experience totally, wholeheartedly. We've had people coming in from Lossie and Bucky and up from Lawrence Kirk and they've embraced the weekly rehearsals and the dinners and the opportunities to meet new people and it's been really wonderful to see the progression that they've been on over the past, well, three rehearsals as I speak now, but two more to go until the big show days. That's the big thing for us just now. Terrific. And there's been some fantastic stories about the models that have been in the media in the run-up to this. Yeah, absolutely. It must always be a bit scary when I phone one of the models and they answer and I'm saying, oh, will you do a press and journal interview? Because I think it actually takes quite a lot of strength and candor to have that conversation with someone that you haven't met before. And everyone has been so willing to use these various different media platforms to share their experiences. And I think for a lot of the models who've done that, a big thing for them is just breaking down some of the walls and ensuring that people feel that there is support out there for them if they ever face anything similar. And hopefully we'll hear a couple of this year's models on the podcast at some point as well, Mike. That would be great. And I think as ever, it's just been a huge team effort with lots of people giving over time to make yeah. it all happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you've seen the shows in action, so you know that it's not something that we could do by ourselves. We're a relatively small team in the grand scheme of things. There's five in the fundraising team and four in the wellbeing team at present. And we rely on the help and support of volunteers hugely to make the shows come to life as well on the days that they run at the Beach Ballroom. So yeah, a huge thanks in anticipation for the hundreds of hours that people will give in that first weekend of May. And you're pleased with the donations you've had for the Giving Tree and people should be saving up their pennies or bringing their pennies along when (laughs) they come to the shows. If you're coming, then of course, we're quite a cashless society now, aren't we? But um, cash is always welcome, but we do have card readers. But I think, uh, you know, I won't give any spoilers as to the fundraising, but it's been very encouraging to see that spirit of generosity in the Northeast. And we see it every single year. There is a huge amount of, of generosity in our region, which we're very fortunate and grateful for. So that's one brilliant event that's happening in May and a real celebration. And another celebration that we hope will be happening is that Matt Huntington, who we've had on the podcast a couple of times talking about his amazing running exploits, is hoping to bring those to a conclusion later this month. Yeah, he just puts us all to shame with what he can achieve in a pair of running shoes. The effort he's put in over this past year and a half, when he completes this, 25 marathons. Wow, 250 10Ks. It's just... Bonkers. Yeah, that's one word. (laughs) 
He's just done the Boston Marathon and then the Edinburgh Marathon to finish. And we'll put a link to his Just Giving page in the show notes because what a fantastic effort. And he's already raised so much for Friends of Anchor, but we'd love it if more could be added to that. Brilliant idea. Yeah. Thank you so much, Erica. And we look forward to getting a further update next month. Thanks for having me. There will be more from Erica next time. But just now we are going to hear from Dr. Dominic Culligan, consultant haematologist at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. Much of my previous contact with Dr. Culligan occurred on ward rounds, when he and his team of doctors and medical students would sweep into the ward and arrange themselves around my bed, from which, sitting in my pyjamas, I would answer a few questions about my well-being and would then listen with interest as Dominic commented on my progress to the assembled group and occasionally engaged in some Q&A designed to ensure that the students would learn as much as possible from the intricacies of my particular case. It was a delight, therefore, to meet up with Dominic recently on equal terms and to be the question master on that occasion. And it was absolutely fascinating to hear him talk about developments in the treatment of blood cancers and other illnesses during his career as well as commenting on possible future directions for such treatments. I therefore decided not to stop the clock during our conversation, with the result that a couple of our regular features have been squeezed out of this month's episode. Be not dismayed, however, as they will return for our next outing. I started by asking Dominic to tell me a bit about his early career and how he ended up in Aberdeen. So I'm a consultant haematologist uh, at Aberdeen uh, Royal Infirmary, and I have been since uh, 1996. Going back before then, I qualified in medicine from King's College and King's College Hospital in in London in in 1986. And I suppose back then things were very different, particularly the initial training that you had after qualifying as a doctor, and uh, you started off as a house officer. Nowadays, they're called foundation year doctors. And my first house officer job was in medicine. And I think most doctors that you speak to will say how much they are influenced and affected by their early career choices and experiences in work, uh, and particularly by uh, interactions with senior colleagues. And my first job was on a ward called Trundle and Waddington at King's College Hospital. They all had great names at the wards rather than just numbers like we have today. And it was a job doing a combination of general medicine, endocrinology and haematology. And I had actually quite liked haematology teaching, but I didn't have any experience of it. The department was very small at King's College Hospital with just a handful of beds. But the department was led by two giants of haematology, the late Professor Alistair Bellingham, who was to become the president of the Royal College of Pathologists, and a young Dr. Ghulam Mufti, who over some 30 years would, would change King's College Hospital haematology department into one of the most uh, impressive departments, both clinically and academically in, in the UK and in the wider world. So I, I was very strongly influenced by them, and I enjoyed the interaction with them and my introduction to the specialty of haematology. And really, it went from there. And uh, after training in medicine and haematology for a while in London, I, I moved to Cardiff, where I spent six years, again, within a very good department. And I did an MD degree under the supervision of the late Professor Alan Jacobs. And interestingly, both Professor Alan Jacobs and Professor Ghulam Mufti had a, a very strong interest 
in a group of diseases called myelodysplastic syndromes, uh, which are cancers of the of the bone marrow and often the early stages of acute leukemia. And that got me interested in, in that area as well, along with most other areas of haematology and particularly malignant haematology. And after finishing my training in Cardiff, I, I started to look for a job. And as a, an Englishman who'd worked in Wales, I was fairly open-minded as to where I would go. But myself and my wife at that time, we didn't plan to go to Scotland or indeed to Aberdeen. But the opportunity came, so we decided to have a look at it. And it was a time of great change uh, in the haematology department in Aberdeen. It was a busy department here and it was understaffed. We talk about understaffing nowadays, but it was understaffed at a senior level. And um, Dr. Audrey Dawson and, and the late Dr. Bruce Bennett were working very hard to keep the service going. And there needed to be more people. As they were coming up to retirement, there was a decision to expand the department uh, and in particular to appoint uh, an academic professor of haematology. And Professor Mike Greaves was appointed, and a number of us were appointed in either NHS or academic posts to join him at a very exciting time for Aberdeen haematology. And what did that look like in terms of those early days? And as you say, that team assembling and beginning to get to grips with the challenges of haematological diseases. Looking back, things were very different. The department was very busy, but in some senses, it was a bit disjointed in the way it was set up. And many departments end up like that when they're just trying to keep the whole thing going. There were some aspects of the service that needed a little bit updating and uh, developing. And of course, with more people, we were able to do that. And there was a move to try and unify clinical and academic work with the new professor and senior lecturer, Mark Vickers. So we all felt that there was lots to do. And of course, haematology back then in 1996 was different to how it is now. In terms of haematological malignancy, blood cancers, nearly every patient was treated with traditional chemotherapy. And the modern targeted treatments that we are increasingly using now were still some years off. And what was the success rate like at that time, both in terms of a positive outcome in the short term, but also in the long term? Chemotherapy was effective in quite a, a few patients with haematological malignancy, certainly more so than in patients with solid tumours. And that was part of the attraction of working in haematology in, in that outcomes were better from the treatments that were available. But it very much varied from disease to disease. It still does now, but the newer treatments have leveled the playing field a, a bit more. So, for example, patients with lymphoma we're still doing very well with chemotherapy and indeed chemotherapy uh, treatments that we used back then in 1996 and even 20 years before that in the 1970s such as CHOP chemotherapy are still used today with some modifications and so there were groups of patients who were doing well from that point of view but other patients particularly patients with acute leukemia were not doing so well and recent developments have improved their outcome in the long term. In some ways, some of the biggest changes have been in taking the treatments that we had and adding to them. So, for example, uh, to go back to CHOP chemotherapy in, in 2000, people had looked for a long time at how you could improve on CHOP chemotherapy and adding additional chemotherapy drugs hadn't worked. But back in 2000, adding rituximab, a monoclonal antibody that kills lymphoma cells, 
to CHOP chemotherapy was beneficial and that was a landmark event and in the same year we saw probably the greatest development in the treatment of human malignancy in the introduction of imatinib, a targeted therapy uh, that targeted the genetic abnormality in chronic myeloid leukemia and changed the disease from a largely fatal disease to a disease with a, a normal life expectancy. And that, to this day, remains a remarkable achievement. So in the early stages of my time in Aberdeen, we started to see these improvements through better understanding of the diseases we were treating and the introduction of targeted, better-tolerated therapies. Those are amazing and so heartening developments. How do they typically come about? Is it one scientist on his own shouting Eureka, or is it broader than that? Oh no, I think it's much broader than that. And the thing that I've noticed in my career in haematology, that most developments occur in small increments. That's not to say there aren't usually very inspirational people who've led the way or made a key breakthrough. And if you look at the chronic myeloid leukemia, there were steps going forward from the early 1960s in the understanding of the disease so that the identification of the chromosomal abnormality in chronic myeloid leukemia then going on to the understanding of how that chromosomal abnormality changed key genes and then through further inspirational work in collaboration with a drug company the identification of molecules that could inhibit the abnormal proteins produced by the abnormal gene and that led to the final breakthrough most of the treatments that have happened have come about that way with incremental developments albeit maybe based on a very important scientific understanding which is then gradually developed and i take it the trials are quite important in that context as well Yeah, absolutely. Developing a treatment and identifying a treatment is the first step, but then you have to prove that it is safe uh, to give to people and that it works. And that takes many years of trials at different stages, initially introducing it to animals. And if that's safe, then using it in very carefully observed phase one trials in people. And then going on, if it's safe, to use it in larger numbers of patients in more advanced trials to try and show its benefit and of course we're all completely dependent on the generosity of patients who agree to take part in these trials and every single treatment we have is dependent on brave patients who agree when asked sometimes without a huge amount of information to take part in trials and that is ongoing. And is it ongoing also in the sense of developments still to happen or have the major breakthroughs happened I think we're still maybe even just in the foothills, but we're well in the foothills. What we've seen in the last 20 years is that the scientists have made great strides in understanding the genetic basis of disease, not just hematological disease, but many different diseases. But in hematology, we've started to understand in considerable detail how genetic change in important cells leads to disease, both malignant and non-malignant. And that then allows clinicians and clinician scientists to develop treatments that target those abnormalities. And that's what we're seeing across a range of diseases now. So, for example, in haematology, if you take a disease, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, the commonest type of uh, leukemia that we see and treat 
if you go back even to just before the COVID pandemic, there were patients who were still treated with conventional chemotherapy. But over the last five years, and particularly since the pandemic, that has almost universally changed now, so that patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia can be very successfully treated with targeted drugs without the use of chemotherapy. And other diseases are moving in that direction. Most of them, we're in a situation where there's a mixture of conventional chemotherapy and targeted therapy, and at some stage, patients will get one or the other. But the direction of travel is very much away from chemotherapy to more targeted therapies. Those treatments are really to do with drugs and molecules. Running parallel to that is the use of cellular therapy, so learning how to harness the immune system. And that is another area that's grown. It started back in the late 1970s with bone marrow transplantation, or stem cell transplantation as we call it now, you know, giving somebody a new immune system that could then fight cancer cells. And that in itself has been incredibly successful and has developed over the last 20 years in a way that allows it to be more widely used in older, less fit populations who suffer from these diseases. But on top of that, we have learned other ways of engaging the immune system by changing immune cells called T-cells so that they can more effectively attack cancer cells without having a transplant and developing new types of antibody, so-called T-cell engagers, that can bring the cancer and the T-cells together in the body so that the T-cells fight the cancer. And this is a very, very exciting way forward, and it's now available in Scotland, and we hope will be available in Aberdeen over the next few years. The Scottish Government has approved uh, Aberdeen as a CAR T-cell centre in the second wave of developing CAR T-cell services. At the moment, the service is just provided in Glasgow, but hopefully it will be provided in Edinburgh and Aberdeen as the demand for these treatments increases. That is all just so encouraging to hear and is very positive indeed. When it comes to the diseases and cancers we're talking about, are they static or do they have the potential to evolve and to be an elusive, ever-changing target? It's an excellent question and I think from what we've learnt in recent years, the latter. These are diseases that are often genetically unstable and you get relapses with new groups of cells. We call it clonal evolution, but what it means is that some groups of cells change their genes further and are able to avoid previous treatments. I was reading an article recently about a long-term, very ambitious study looking at lung cancer, where the authors feel that lung cancer may be almost ever-changing in terms of, it seems to be never-ending in terms of the genetic developments that it can undergo. And that makes identifying a single treatment that can treat lung cancer or treat leukaemia almost impossible. So malignancies are evolving treatments, and we have to be mindful of that in terms of monitoring patients when they relapse and deciding what subsequent treatments might be worth using or not, and in developing treatments in the future. It certainly sounds like a complex task to work out the best treatment. Yes, absolutely. And of course, sadly, sometimes the changes are such that we can't overcome them and patients have disease that is no longer treatable for these reasons. But that doesn't mean to say that patients can't be looked after very well 
and that's why the other side of haematology and medicine in general, the caring side, uh, the palliation side, is also very, very important. And uh, we sometimes get very carried away with the science and the attempt to cure, understandably, but the caring side is, is equally important. Absolutely. And that human side just means so much to those patients and their families affected by what we're talking about. I suppose that perhaps brings us on to Friends of Anchor. What's been your experience of Friends of Anchor as a charity and their involvement in this area? Utterly remarkable in the contribution it's made to the care of cancer patients and haematology patients in the northeast of Scotland. As I said, I started in Aberdeen in 1996 and uh, Friends of Anchor started in 1997, if I remember rightly, under the tremendous vision of Sir Jimmy Milne. And therefore, my entire career, as it comes into the last stages, has seen Friends of Anchor be a cornerstone of the services that we provide in so many ways, perhaps most importantly in the patient-centred well-being services, which contribute to this caring and holistic supportive part of what we do. And that's been utterly tremendous but also in contributions to try in our way in Aberdeen to move forward the cutting edge side of care that we've talked about. We all hear how the NHS is facing challenges and difficulties, and there is no doubt about that. But an organisation like Friends of Anchor can soften those edges by providing equipment and services which might take much longer to come to the NHS without the help. In my early years, when we set up autologous transplantation in Aberdeen as a new service uh, in the late 1990s, there was a move afoot to try and purify the stem cells. In autologous transplantation, you use the patient's own stem cells. So there's a risk that the cancer cells, say the lymphoma cells or the myeloma cells, are mixed in there when you collect them, and that you can therefore put them back into the patient, which wouldn't be a good thing to do. So there was technology that allowed you to purify the stem cells and Friends of Anchor provided us with that technology which we used for a few years. Like everything, it had its day and we moved on because we found that maybe it wasn't that necessary. But it just showed you how valuable Friends of Anchor was at stepping up to help make sure in Aberdeen we could give treatment which was at the forefront of care and so that we don't fall behind And that has continued, not just in haematology, but equipment that has been given to the gastroenterologists and the ENT surgeons and others, which is absolutely essential to what we do. And then on top of that, the charity has supported uh, research and most importantly, it supported uh, young doctors and young scientists to contribute to research, either through pilot projects or through major projects that have led to MDs or PhDs. And that does a few things. It provides research data, but on top of that, it provides training for the next generation of doctors and scientists. And it gives them the opportunity to train and move their careers forward in Aberdeen without having to go somewhere else. And it supports both the hospital and the University of Aberdeen. So again, it contributes to a vital function in the running of the whole health campus. It is a remarkable organisation, is Friends of Anchor, and has contributed so much over the 25 years that I've been here, and hopefully for many years to come. And I'm sure that'll be the case, particularly with their involvement in the new Anchor Centre as well. 
Yeah, and I hope to at least spend some time in the new anchor centre when it opens. But that's very exciting for us all. Most departments and organisations outgrow the facilities they have. We have a great ward facility in Ward 112, and the oncologists have a similar setup in Ward 114 that we've had for 10 years or so. But the outpatient facility and the day unit facility where many of the patients are seen and treated is less cutting edge is less cutting edge and is tired and cramped Uh, and so the new anchor center will be very welcome and again friends of anchor are going to help make it more than it would be if it was left to nhs resources alone brilliant and you must have built up such experience of dealing with patients their friends and family over the years what advice would you give to people in that situation facing a blood cancer diagnosis and everything that can follow from that Despite the developments in treatment, of course, it's an upsetting and challenging time for patients and their family. But the first thing I would say, and I do say it to patients, it can be overwhelming for the patient because it's a completely new thing for them. But for the staff that are there to help you, they have seen it before. They know the trauma that you are going through and they are there absolutely to help you to take on that burden. So don't feel afraid or in any way ashamed at handing yourself over to those staff and let them take the burden because that's what they're there for. Ask everything that you want to ask. I think that is really important. People are frightened to ask. There are no bad questions. There are no silly questions. Often when we're a bit rushed, we don't explain things as well as we could do. I'm sure I've not explained things as well as I could do here. But if you ask, things can always be gone over. Make little notes so that next time you come, you can ask something that you forgot to ask. If you've had enough, if you find it overwhelming, then ask to stop, to have a rest or even to come back at another time. These are all things that help you feel comfortable about the information you're getting and that the information is appropriate for you. And have hope because certainly in my area of expertise of hematological cancer there is a huge amount of hope and many many patients are either cured or have what is commonly called a functional cure in that they can live a near normal life for many many years even though there is the risk of these diseases coming back so i think we're in a a very very positive uh, era and despite the bad press that the NHS is getting on an almost daily basis, the service is genuinely good in terms of the expertise and the level of care and the dedication that the staff can give you. And I still think that in the UK, the practice of medicine is second to none. It is perhaps limited in places by resource, but in terms of the knowledge base and the ability to understand diseases and deliver care at the highest level, I don't think patients should have any concern. And at the end of the day, I think nearly everybody that I've ever met who works in the NHS would not want to give up on it, because that basic principle that no matter 
who you are and whatever your background, you'll get access to the same treatment. It's completely invaluable. And that is the case. And I think in a career in medicine in the NHS, you see all different types of people in different situations and different circumstances, and you're able to help them all and provide the right treatment for them. And my understanding of other health services around the world is that that's not always the case. And if I can just ask about haematology as a department or as a team, Obviously, you are a key person within the Aberdeen haematology world, but is it all about Dominic or how important are all the different people in the team and who's all involved in that and makes a contribution? It's a huge team. It really is. And every single person has a vital role to play. So the doctors do the medicine, but the actual delivery of the care is carried out by the nursing staff in particular, supported by other healthcare workers such as physiotherapists, dietitians, and then we have other healthcare professionals such as the pharmacists. So there's a very large number of people who work together, contribute their own individual skills, but working together allow the seamless delivery of care through the patient's pathway. People sometimes just look at the staff that interact directly with the patients, but behind the scene there are many crucial staff that don't interact directly with the patients, but make the environment very safe. You know, the cleaners who've had a very challenging time during the pandemic and are there every single day in all parts of the hospital keeping the thing going. Engineers, scientists and physicists within the radiation department. As far as I understand, there are over 5,000 people work at ARI, and all of them are providing uh, a crucial role. So it is very much a team effort. And I'm very fortunate that I've always had tremendous colleagues. And just from the medical point of view, I'm sort of involved in a second team almost now, because my colleagues who started with me in 1996... You've seen them all off. I've seen them all off. And some of them still contribute tremendously to the workings of Friends of Anchor. And uh, I now have a new team of very bright and enthusiastic young colleagues who keep me in order and make sure I don't do anything silly at the end of my career. I'm sure that will not happen. Dominic, that's just been so informative and so interesting. Is there anything you'd like to say as a final comment? I need to, on behalf of the department, say a very, very big thank you to the Friends of Anchor. Their achievements are one thing. It's the dedication to keep it going for so long that is another. Jimmy Milne and the committees and the supporters have never given up on it. And you can see why you might want to think, well, I'll, I'll do this for a certain length of time and then it becomes too challenging. Nobody in Friends of Anchor has ever done that. So it's just grown and improved and continued to support the people of the northeast of Scotland. So many, many congratulations to the Friends of Anchor for the service they provide. One treatment used in haematology in the past that I didn't discuss with Dominic was the deployment of leeches to treat certain conditions because of the supposed benefits of using them to draw blood from patients. It turns out, however, that leeches are currently making something of a comeback because of the invaluable contribution that they can make to certain medical procedures, most notably amputation scenarios. It turns out also that one of only two registered leech farms in the whole world is located in a tiny Welsh village just outside Swansea, and at any one time it can be cultivating up to 100,000 of these blood-sucking worms to use their original designation. 
That's probably more than enough information on this topic for most of you, but for anyone whose curiosity has been piqued, I include a couple of links in the show notes. And the show notes are also where you will find the usual details of how to get in touch with us and to receive news and updates. That's us for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and please do join us again next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you and your podcast where you want to go. 